the man with the bourgeois beat, not the beatnik beat, but the bourgeois beat, Harold Everyman, Gene Shepard. Just a minute now. Look, I know you don't like to have the paper read to you, but I want to tell you this. Just listen for a minute. So only take a second here. Now listen, it's in today's paper. All right, I won't read the paper to you. Why do you have to make that? All right, I'll tell you. <laughs> listen, I'll tell you what it is. Now don't take this wrong. Five-letter word? How about cigar? Stogie. <laughs> oh, boy. Listen, you're, you're not going to get me hung up on those puzzles. I am not about to get hung up on them. You know that my old lady worked crossword puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, Chinese nail puzzles. She even tried to puzzle out my old man's life for 400 years. So you're not about... Hello, hello, hello. How does he work this thing? <laughs> oh, let hang there. There. There we go. Oh, boy. You don't mind if I talk to her, do you? Look, she takes garbage out, and I take garbage out. Take your own garbage out, then. If you don't want me to talk to her, that is. <laughs> what a great thing. I can see this short story, baby, can't you? In, in, in true romance, I met him by the incinerator. That began every day, the man next door and me would meet next, next to the incinerator. He carried his garbage in a big wet bag. I carried mine in a cardboard box. Soon we were exchanging pleasantries. And of course, from then on, it was inevitable. Both of us knew. I was carrying one day a bag of coffee grounds. He helped me when it... <laughs> All right, so you're right. Okay, I'll tell you what I read in the paper. You mind if I turn the record player down a little bit? Look, there is a guy out in Detroit, an automotive engineer, who invented a machine that listens to him, and he's putting it on the market. Now, here's what the story is. He said he's riding in his car one day, and he's got the radio turned on, see? 
He's riding in the car, and he turns the radio down, and he's mad. He's, he's had an argument with his boss. And he starts to argue, he's, he's, and he finds that he's arguing with the announcer. And the poor old announcer's going along, and the guy's feeling greater and greater as he argues. And then he got the idea that what he needed was a machine to listen to him, because nobody listened to him. <laughs> so he went home, and he started to work. And he's an engineer, see? Works for Detroit, you know, one of these car companies. And by the end of the month, he had him, and this is, I'm not kidding you, baby. This guy is going to put on a machine, and you're, you're probably going to see it down at Corvettes. This guy put a machine on the market that listens, and not only listens, it reacts and makes no editorial comment. You plug it in, you turn it on, and you sit there and you chew the fat. You sit there, you drink your beer, and you tell it the stuff. You know, all the stuff. It's coming out of you. Sometimes I feel like that's what I'm talking to here. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. Well, anyway, this guy, he, he, he worked on this machine, and here's the way it works. Now, are you interested? Well, you know the tape recorder. Well, you know that little light bulb that flickers there when you talk into it to tell us whether you're recording or not, that little orange bulb? Well, he uses two of these things as eyes in this machine. But he's got it especially set up so that the more you get heated, you know, the more you get excited, the more this thing reacts to you. And it flickers. It really does. Until finally, when you get mad enough, when you're really, really, you know, laying it down, this machine makes a humming sound that sounds sympathetic. It's got some kind of a relay in there. I'm not kidding you. That cuts in. And when you hit your point, you say, and then if you think you're going to... Then the machine goes... And the light then is steady. And then it, it holds that for about 30 seconds, and then it slowly flickers off and starts to listen to you again. And you know you've hit the jackpot when this machine hums. In other words, if you don't make your point well enough, the machine never hums. Can't you see some guy? He sends this thing back to GE. He says, for two years I've been hollering this thing, and it hasn't said a word yet. It hasn't hummed once. Send my dough back. And they send it back, and they just say, well, you know, I'm sorry. But we said that you have to make your point. This machine does not hum unless you make your point. You haven't made your... <laughs> uh... Well, what's bugging you? I just was telling you the story of this machine because I thought it was a gas, baby. That's all. I think it's a great machine. In fact, I'm thinking of sending your mother's husband one. <laughs> I can think of no better, honestly, I can think of no better Christmas gift. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm thinking of bringing one home myself, baby. <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, gee whiz, you know, the trouble with the trouble with most people today, and, and you know, you hear this in, in 50 different ways every day, the trouble with most people today is that they just cannot, they do not, there's absolutely no sense of humor. <laughs> I could see, I could see me, I could, I could see after you get teed off one day and you're out for a long walk. <laughs> I reach in the I reach in the closet and I bring out this thing, you know, and I plug it in and I'm sitting there. And you know the sad part of it is, is that I bet a lot of guys 
are going to buy these things and find that they're happier with this machine than they are with anybody they've known for years. You know, this is why... Have you ever heard the old expression, baby, necessity is the mother of invention? <laughs> well, <laughs> the reason that I'm pointing this out is that there are plenty of guys. You know, the other day... Now, now look, don't, don't, don't say anything to Marge about this. You promise now? Come on. I'm not kidding you. Just don't, don't open your yap about this one. Okay? Well, the other day I'm sitting in the office and Bob comes in. It's right after lunch and I'm just sitting there kind of, you know, you get that logy, bloppy feeling after lunch. And I had been out with these guys from, oh, I don't know, you know, we went out and a bunch of guys came along and the next thing you know, we're over in Le Marmiton on the, on, you know, the, you know, the whole business. And I came back and I'm sitting there. It's, it seems like the lunch went on for four hours. Oh, you know, it's getting to the point where I'm beginning to believe that all of life is a lunch with, with, it's, it's getting ridiculous. You know, if I figured out how much, okay, all right, I'll, I'll stick to the subject. So can I turn this thing down, baby, for a minute? All right, all right, I'm not going to turn it off. So anyway, I came back after lunch. What is this? This is like a madhouse here today. What, what, what is this? Is this this music you're playing or what? Who is that? He blows, man. Huh. That sounds like Nepper. Jimmy Nepper. On the trombone. Well, anyway, now look. Now, now, let's get back to the thing here. I, I want to. I want. I want you to to promise me you're not going to open your mouth about this, because there's enough trouble down at the office now anyway. And if you open your trap, what? Don't even. Don't even suggest that you talk to me about this. Well, anyway, I came back from lunch the other day. It was last Wednesday, and I was feeling. You know, bloated and everything after lunch, and I sat around for a while, and I just couldn't get going. I'm just sitting there, and Bob came in, and I, he's usually, you know, he's usually one of these. There are are heavy guys and light guys. You know what I mean? I don't mean in weight. There are guys who are light in the way they are towards things. You know, they just light. You know, the guys never think about anything really much. They just do things, and they buy boats, you know, and they go along, and then one day they die, and that's it. And, and it's not even serious when they die, you know, this kind. Just a light guy. And then there are heavy guys. Well, Bob is one of these light guys. And, and this is probably one of the reasons why I like to be around with him once in a while. He just doesn't think of anything. And when he does, it's always the wrong thing. He, the first thing he thinks of is wrong. And, it's, and, 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 you know, he's one of these guys who always says, I believe in doing the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm usually right then. <laughs> Oh, boy. If he ever did the first thing... He is a born, honestly, he is a born committee member. Just the guy who raises his hand when the crowd raises it. He's perfect. Well, anyway, he came in... <laughs> I know. Look. Look, your old lady... Look, you should talk about digressions, baby. Anyway, I came back, and I'm sitting there waiting after lunch. Just waiting it out. When Bob came in, and he had the... He had this crazy look on his face. He had the look of a heavy person on his face. And it looks terrible on the face of a light person, you know? 
It's like Jerry Lewis suddenly looking out from the screen and saying to you folks, now look, about that situation in the Congo, I have a solution that involves unilateral trade agreements. I mean, just ridiculous on the guy's pan. Well, this is what happened to Bob. Bob's got this funny look on his face, and he comes sitting, he, you know, flopping in. He's carrying that ridiculous briefcase he lugs around. I think he sleeps with that thing. I mean, it's it's poor guy's got nothing in it about three old presentations that must be six years old, and a rate card. And poor old guy comes lobbing in with this thing, and he sits down. I I think he feels naked without it. I have never seen him open it. It's just like, you know, some people got to wear a, a tie. Well, he's got to carry this thing in his arm or he feels like he's, uh, he's, you know, he's he's unarmed. So anyway, he comes in. Are you listening? Now, come on, I want you to listen because this is important because it involves, well, you'll see. All right, later. Look, why, why later? Listen, I'll go down for milk later. Why must I stop in the middle of a story? I have just started to tell you the story. Well, anyway, Bob came in and he had this funny look on his face and he sat down at this chair and he sort of sideways. And it was one of those times when you got to say something to somebody. You know, have you ever been around? You know, when you sit down and somebody sits down with you and you know you've got to say something, it's just hanging in the air. It's a say something. So I said, what's the matter? What's eating you? And he turned to me. Now listen, he turned to me. And he still had this ridiculous look on his face. It was like Jerry Lewis beginning to discuss, uh, oh, beginning to discuss Schopenhauer. You know, that's got crazy look. And he turns to me and he says, nothing, I feel fine. What's eating you? I said, nothing's eating me, but you came in here, there's, what is it? You, you, you don't, you, there's something wrong. Now, what is it? He says, nothing is wrong. And I have never seen a guy go so out of his mind, so out of his head more in one-tenth of a second than this guy. And luckily, we were, we were by ourselves in the office. He says to me, what do you mean, there's any, what are you talking about? Are you bugging me again or what? I says, now, wait a minute. What are you... It's just easy, buddy. Now, stop it. Cut it out now. And he got up out of his chair, this little shrimp. Bob! Yeah, Bob! You know, Marge, Bob? This little ridiculous bald-headed shrimp. This guy was bald at the age of 19. This little guy gets up out of his chair. He comes over and stands over. It was like I was out of a nightmare. And he stands looking down at me and he says, what, what, what is eating you now? Let's get it out now, just once. Let's level with each other. What, uh, what have you got against me? And what have you been, what, what is it now? Come on. And I'm sitting there in, in my chair. I don't know what to say, you know. And he just stands there waiting for me to say something. I says, what is, what is this? What are you talking about? He says, you know what I'm talking about. Bob, yeah, Bob. That's right, Bob. You know Bob, the little thin guy, Marge. We've been up to his house a dozen times. Don't you remember anything past yesterday? Bob, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sitting there in the chair, and this little guy, this is my friend. I mean, the only guy I, honestly, you know, he's, he's, he's a nothing, really, in a lot of ways. But he's the only guy in the office that I can stand more than five minutes. And he probably thinks I'm a nothing, which is probably true. But at least we've never had anything. And he is standing over me, looking down at me, and he says to me, What is eating you? And it's about time we had it out. 
Well, I couldn't answer him. And I thought he was going to hit me. I mean, it has been since I was 10. I, I, I must have been 10 years old the last time I thought some guy was going to hit me. This little guy, Bob. And I says, what is, what's the matter, Bob? You know, I was trying to calm him down. I said, what is the matter? Now, come on, sit down easy. He says, look, buddy, don't easy me. Don't give me this, this jazz about easy business. And don't treat me like I'm a kid. And he just stood there and looked. And just then, it, it was like out of a, a ridiculous TV show, just then the door opens and in came Mrs. Morris. You know, the big fat one down in purchasing. She came in and she, you know, she's one of these people. She's all bubbling and thought, you know, she's got a, a basket full of mail and stuff. She comes in and she, she looked at us and I know she knew something was wrong just like that. Just like that. She stopped and she says, oh, uh, are you busy here? And Bob didn't say anything, just looked at her. And I said, look, I said, no, everything's fine because I want, you know. And she came in and she start, She came in, she starts to do this thing with the basket. Well, Bob sat down and after she left, no, I don't know what he was trying to say. Look, I'm not, look, I want you to understand one thing. I am not a sore head at the office. Every time, why, why do you, why, look, I'm telling you a story. I've told you exactly the way it, 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 it happened. Why do you have to come back to me and then tell me I probably started it? I am entirely different, baby, entirely different at the office than I am here. <laughs> Take that any way you want. Well, anyway, about ten minutes afterwards, Bob put on his hat and left. That's all. Just walked out. Never said anything. Took his bag and left. You know, I'm going to tell you, and this is why I don't want you to open your trap. I think Marge has finally done it. You know what I'm talking about. You remember a long time ago you and I talked about this chick? At least I talked to you about her. The second time we went to her house, the first time there were 45 people there, the second time, you remember the night we went over there real late after the show? And we go out in the kitchen, me and this chick, and she's supposed to be getting the beer and I'm supposed to be slicing the cheese. She opens up the refrigerator. She gave me a look, and I mean the look. You remember that? Now look, don't try to pretend to me that you don't remember that. And you know very well what I'm talking about. Anyway. Anyway, I'm sitting there on my duff after Bob walked out and got the elevator down. You know, it's funny, when a guy like that leaves the room, it's like he's still there. Like he leaves a, a shadow, you know? Do you ever have the feeling when I walk out of here that, that I'm still here? Oh. Well, anyway, Bob leaves. 
And I'm sitting there thinking about this, and I finally have decided that it's, I think she's done it. I don't know who, I don't know why, I don't know where. But I think she's done it, and I think Bob knows she's done it. And let me tell you, once a man knows that, there ain't no going back. And you know, I don't know whether or not I feel bad about it. You know, I got a feeling about that baby. It's this. You could use, you know, are you listening to me? Look, I'm not talking about us, you know. But I'm talking about everybody. I can't, well. Oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. All I'm trying to say is that after he left, I began to feel worse and worse. And after work that night, you remember when I was about two hours late? I'll tell you where I was. I was down on the White Rose on 6th Avenue. Gin and tonic. Yeah. And it wasn't I don't know, I can't explain it except to say that it really bothered me. It really bothered me. And you know, I, you know what I think bothered me about it? I think what bothered me about it most of all. And you listen, and I don't want you to say anything to anybody about this. Now, I'm serious. Don't you say anything about it. It was this. That for all the years I have known this guy... I've looked at his back now for five years. I knew, somehow, I knew it was going to happen. I knew it. You know, I don't know why. I, he's one of those guys that this, this happens to. And I knew it was going to happen to him. And I remember a couple of years ago, after that, after that thing in the kitchen, I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at him one day, and I said to myself, I just hope he doesn't find out about it. That's all. But then I suppose, you know, it, 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 you can't help it. I'll tell you something funny about it, baby. You know, I don't know whether it works this way with chicks. Because I don't think they want to look at it. Or maybe they do, but I don't know whether it works this way with chicks. But I can tell you how it works with men. I knew. I just knew. And, and I, I'll never forget that night. We went bowling. And, and I had been I had been kidding myself for about six months, and we're sitting back there bowling, and she's bowling, and she comes back and sits down, and I, I I couldn't stop it. I said, "Look, you know, you might as well tell me about it." And what I wanted her to say was, "No, it didn't happen," even though I knew that it did. I, I said, "Look, you might as well tell me about it," and she says, "Okay." And for the next fifteen minutes, she told me, and I'll tell you, I blacked out nine times during that, you know. I don't even remember what she said. All I know is that, boy, boy, I could hear bowling pins in my head for a week afterwards. And I knew, I knew it was going to happen to this guy. Now, I don't know why this makes me feel terrible, because there's nothing I could do about it. Nothing. 
There's nothing I can do about it. You can't walk up to a guy and shake him and say, look, buddy, it's going to happen to you next week or maybe next year. I mean, how can you do that? And you know, I'm going to tell you something right now, baby. And and this this is just between you and me. I'm sitting there and I'm drinking and I'm talking. I'm sitting and looking and watching the ball game. I'm doing everything down at the White Rose. And suddenly it comes to me. I wonder if some guy is looking at my back. <laughs> you know, look, I, I don't want I don't want to get serious. I mean, I I I just don't want to get serious. I'll tell you. No, 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 come on, no, 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 none of this, now come on, now, you don't have to, now cut it out, will you? <laughs> Why don't we go out for a walk, huh? I mean, just, you know, just walk. You know what I'd like to do? I would like to walk over on Park Avenue and look at, look at the launches and the Porsches in the window, huh? You want to go? Come on. You know what I like to do? I would like to walk and I would like to look up. You know that building where they've got the time on the, on the tower up there where it says 6.38, 6.39, you know? How about you and me going down there and just watching that sign, huh? <laughs> I'll tell you. A lot of times I've, I, get, I get teed off with you, and a lot of times you get teed off with me. I will tell you one thing. Maybe that's what makes it worthwhile, you know? <laughs> I'll tell you what I'll do. And then, now I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you just sit there and listen, baby, for one minute. I am in charge right now. Look, I don't know what we can do about Bob. There's nothing you can do when you find out that it's happened to a guy, you know? And, and you know, I'll tell you another funny thing. He came back the next day, and, and, and he's, got, he's got this funny look like he wants to apologize to me, and, 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 I, and, and I don't know what to say to him, you know? And, and you know, men are funny. Men, men are really funny, baby. They, 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 there are times when they can't say anything to one another when they know they should. And so he came in the next day, and all I wanted to say to him was, you know, Bob, <laughs> I know. And I was afraid if, if I said that, he would know that I knew, you know. <laughs> so I had to pretend I was sore, and he's pretending he's mad. And do you know that we haven't said anything for three days? <laughs> And neither one of us is mad. And this poor guy is so sick, he doesn't know which way to go. Now, I all I know is that he has never said this to me, that it's happened. And I just know it has. And don't you, if you open your mouth about this, so help me, I am going to wring your neck. Because if you open your trap about this one, we are, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not kidding. Now, look. I want to get this out of my skull. So I am in control. Okay? We are going down. We're going to look at the Porsches. We're going to look at the launches. You are going to look at the Mercedes with me. We are going to look up at the tower. And we're going to watch that number up there that says 1238. And when it says 100, 1 a.m. 
you and I are going to come back here, okay? And on the way back, I'm going to buy two cheeseburgers with coleslaw. Don't give me the jazz about your diet. I don't want to hear anything. I am sick and tired up to the death of that diet. Now, you shut up for one minute. I am going to get two cheeseburgers. I'm going to get two great big fat kosher pickles with hair on them. I mean real smelly kosher pickles. And I'm going to buy three gallons of beer. And then we are going to come back here and we are going to together work that crossword puzzle. And after that, baby, we are going to swing. Okay? All right, now don't, don't, don't fool with your hair, nothing. You are not going to mess, you are not going to mess with your hair. You are not going to, you are not going to do, you are not going to do anything. You are just going to go with me and we are going out now. You are going to wear your glasses even, okay? I don't know what to say. If you could, if you could somehow visualize the world, if you could stand back and look at it as though you had some kind of a very special piece of equipment, a piece of equipment that would enable you to trace as, well, have you ever seen a, uh, a diagram of the human nervous system? I mean, this, it's like a man standing there. Have you seen those glass men? Let me tell you what, what happened to me once when I was this little itsy-bitsy kid. I had a terribly embarrassing thing happen to me that involved a glass man. And every time I walked past these drugstores, these days where they have these, these plastic glass men that have all the... that have all the. Speaking of plastic men, this is W-O-R, A-M at F-M, New York. I'm walking past these drugstores and I see these plastic men. And I'm reminded of a terrible thing that happened to me when I'm a kid. You know, I think one thing that kids have, all over adults, all over adults, they have the ability to become totally embarrassed. I mean so embarrassed, it's, it's, it's like you're going to fold up like, like, a, like an old nasturtium on the lapel of an ancient bum. You are just going to fade up and, and, and just die. Turn inside out. And I had a terribly embarrassing moment that involved a plastic glass man. And I will describe that embarrassment. Have you ever been to the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry? This is a veritable, it's, it's a fantasy land for a kid. They have, among other things, a, a coal mine right there in the middle of it. I remember one time I'm down in that coal mine and I'm a kid. And I'm following 47 other kids from the third grade class. And these guys right ahead of me are mining coal. And they're wearing caps with lights on them, peering into the darkness. And this great big machine is sawing coal away. For over two years after that, every time I put a Tim cap on, I imagined I had a light peering into the darkness. And I used to sit at my desk when I was about maybe eight or nine years old and pretend that I was sawing away at coal, little realizing that I was in the same mine. It's a different kind of a mine, but the same mine. I mean, we're way down here, all of us together, and we're getting ready to blast out. But one week... I'm down there with the third grade class. They used to regularly take us down there. They had one exhibit that taught me a great deal about life in general. 
Have you ever seen the exhibit where they have the bowling balls suspended from the ceiling? It's, it's the, the transmission of energy through a solid object, I believe is what it shows. It has some, some kind of a very stuffy, some kind of a very stuffy title under it like that. Uh, uh, Botticelli's theory of the transmission of, of uh, solid matter through solid things and solid energy transmitted that way through a molecular curve, also oscillating circuit. And what it really amounts to is just this. You listen carefully to this. What it amounts to is about two dozen bowling balls hanging from the ceiling. And boy, they have a ceiling. It's a museum ceiling. You know the kind of ceilings that, that, that are so high that you just see sort of gray clouds up there? Great big ceilings. A real museum ceiling. And so hanging from this museum ceiling, there were maybe 35 or 40 long cables, steel cables. And attached to the bottom of each cable was a bowling ball. Now, you got it? Now, these bowling balls were, were adjusted so that they just touched each other in a long line of bowling balls. And you were supposed to go over to the end bowling ball, the little inscription underneath it that says, Now, directions for operating. Pick up the end bowling ball, move it slightly, just go like that. Bump it up again, just grab a hold of it and go. And sure enough, this is what happened. You'd take that one bowling ball and you'd go. You'd wait there for maybe mm, a split second, second, maybe something like that. And suddenly the end bowling ball, 25 feet away, would go, would fly out and bounce back. The end bowling ball and none of the bowling balls in between moved. <laughs> What does this mean? Think about that for a minute. This is more than bowling balls we're talking about, and certainly more than more than steel cables, and more than the third grade class, madam. Now, I repeat again, for the benefit of those of you who are too far back in the classroom to hear the discussion clearly. Now, look at the diagram. Bowling balls, 25. One, two, three, 25 bowling balls in a row. See? Now, there. You see them on the board? There are 25 bowling balls. Now, I take the end bowling ball, the one over here to the left, I take it out, move it out slowly with my hands, just drop it like that. It swings, hits the bowling ball next to it, like that. Now, watch. There, you see the end one there? Ah, see what happened there? What does this mean? What does this mean? All right, I'll tell you what it means. It means that there is no action, nowhere, any place, that does not affect all the other bowling balls, providing they touch. Now, if there was a bowling ball across the hall there just hanging by itself, it would do nothing. Well, it is an incontrovertible fact, fellow sufferers. I still can't get that fertilizer out of my mind. For the benefit of those of you who have dropped into the classroom late, and there are many, it's going to show up at the end of the semester. Have you ever had the feeling that you're arriving at the end of the semester and you've been goofing off? all the time in your life, and one day somebody's going to start, time for the exam, and they're going to be passing it. Can you imagine yourself arriving at purgatory? I mean, you know what is a purgatory. That's a good word. Uh, you arrive at purgatory, see, and there you are up there. One chute is marked in, and the other chute is marked out. And you are there in the middle. You're in the basket, you see. And you're waiting there, you don't know which way you're going to go, whether you're going to go to the in-shoot or the out-shoot. And there's a girl sitting there, and she's the receptionist. And she says, Mr. Clevenger will be here in just a moment. Oh, Mr. Clevenger. <laughs> Clevenger. How did Clevenger get it? Mr. Clevenger. Mr. Clevenger will be here in just a moment. And you say, Clevenger? 
is, is, uh, miss, <coughs> miss, miss, uh, excuse me, miss, uh, is, is, is this Mr. Clevenger a thin, dark, intense man who teaches algebra? Well, yes. How did you know him? Clevenger. What, 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 what does he have to do here with this, uh, this organization you have here? Remember, I'm in purgatory. What does he have to do? Well, he, uh, he gives the exams. Clevenger gives the exams. And sure enough, the door opens, that great pearly door, and in steps Mr. Clevenger wearing a golden suit. Clevenger walks up to you and 300 other unfortunates who are sitting there in rows, long, suffering rows, and he begins to pass out little blue books with 12 blank pages just lined with little blue lines. And he says, this test will consist of 10 essay questions. It will determine uh, much about your future. Mr. Clevenger. All right, now, okay. Now, quit goofing off now, as long as we're going to talk about it. I can't forget that, that fertilizer thing, though. I must, I must remind those of you who came in late that this will appear on the exam. America has gotten into a very interesting state now where it has a deep, deep-seated nostalgia for things real. I mean, things really real. Listen carefully now. Don't, don't, don't lose the thread of this. We have a deep nostalgia. And one of the great, one of the great plant companies out in the Middle West spent millions of dollars developing an odorless fertilizer. I mean, you know, that you put on the nasturtiums. <laughs> And the pansies and the radishes. I ever tell you about the guy I knew who persisted in calling them radishes? Okay, fertilizer. Well, they found that this beautiful fertilizer of theirs did not sell very well. Just didn't make it. And they had spent millions of dollars trying to devise one that was good and was odorless, clean, beautiful, you know. And it did not work out. Nobody bought it. Until one guy in the laboratory says, Aha, I have it! And sure enough, he did. He invented a synthetic barnyard aroma, which they put into the synthetic barnyard fertilizer, and now they have a real, unreal, real fertilizer. And it sells like mad. And guys spread it out there into the nasturtiums, and they breathe in deep, and they say, Oh, that, <laughs> that's real. And you know, I'd like to bring up a point about that. Since we do have a nostalgia for real things, you know that, Ralph, you go fishing. It feels great to look down there and see the real water and the real weeds, doesn't it, after Manhattan? Admit it now. Doesn't it? Of course it does. And to smell that real barnyard aroma in that real plastic fertilizer is a real satisfying thing. Well, now I'd like to make one point. You ready for it, class? I'll tell you what it is. I'm sitting there watching television, and they have hour after hour after hour after hour of, of one-minute commercials bespeaking the merits of various deodorants. Do you realize you could really hit the jackpot, baby, if you went the other way? Has this ever occurred to you? That the one thing that we want, you are expunging. Now, of course, it's you, you know this is. I mean, I'm, I'm just we're just looking at the world the way it is. That's all. I'm not trying to editorialize at all here. 
Okay, you see. That it could very well be possible that you would hit the, the, the big silver jackpot if you came out with a product that did the opposite to what the deodorants do. I mean, you know? Well, I can tell you, you know, there's a certain there's a certain truth to this. And it's inescapable. Truly is, you know. Of course, this this business of the of the deodorants, this business of, of trying to escape from what we are, has very fascinating psychological ins and outs. This 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 clean mania. Do you know that they have found that as a nation becomes more and more involved in its guilt feelings, it becomes more and more cleanliness conscious until it arrives at a point where it does nothing but clean itself all day long in an attempt to wash away its various and or imagined sins. That in the days, the last days of the Romans, they spent all their day in baths. They did nothing but squirt water on one another by the hour and sprinkle perfume on one another so that they would escape being what they are. It is not recorded that Genghis Khan ever took a bath or ever had any conscience at all about anything, or ever once worried that he was ever doing anything wrong. He just socked people, that's all. <laughs> what a jackpot. Can you think of the idea? Think of, think of the names. Have you got any ideas for names of the product? Think of some names of the product. Whoa! I mean, they would have an undeniable attraction. This one-minute spot that shows this girl looking out of the screen, you see. Her hair is slightly disheveled. And it ain't from the wind, baby. Her hair is slightly disheveled. And she's got a dull, sullen glow in the eye. And you see behind her, you see this, this kind of hazy background of her Baroque furniture in her Baroque apartment. And she just looks out at you. For maybe 40 seconds of the 60-second spot with this dull, glowing eye. And then she says... I'm real. Are you? Get real in the new purse-size spray plastic bottle. Discreetly become you with a vengeance. Real. Follow every bath. Of course, what, what real does is merely make back that lost ground that you lost in the bath. <laughs> Excuse me, I digress. <clears throat> oh, yes. I've always had, a, I've always had a, a, terrible, a terrible sneaking desire to see myself as a kind of Mr. Chips. I think we all do. Sitting in my study, I, 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 have you ever thought of your, your declining years? Any of you really thought of your decline? I mean, really, your declining years. And if you had your choice of all things that you would like to decline as, what would you pick as your your your, you know, just anything? Some magic, some magic way you can decline in your own way. You know, I can see myself declining in, in, a, in a nice, unobtrusive uh, New England college. And I'm, I'm called, in a kind of a friendly way behind my back, Mr. Chips. <laughs> Old J.S. Oh, I'll never forget those seminars. 
Of course, I'm retired now, you see, and I'm, I'm, in, my, I'm in my study, my old English study, and I could see myself always at a kind of autumn twilight. This is where I see myself. And I'm there with my ancient brocade slippers and my old stained smoking jacket. And I'm sitting there, and, and I'm kind of dozing off. I'm always dozing off, and there's light coming in through. Somehow, I can see stained glass. I don't know why I see stained glass there. I've never lived in a house that has stained glass, but somehow I can see stained glass in the bay windows, orange stained glass, and it makes a kind of nice yellow light when the sun comes through, a warming light, and it's, it's autumn. I could see myself there, and I'm a legend. I'm a legend among 30, 30 or more classes of undergraduates who have, who have suffered and have smiled and have won, gained, and lost at the feet of old J.S. and his seminars. And I, and I see myself teaching something, something beautiful like uh, Greek rationale philosophy, something like that. I mean, business law, oh no. I mean, something, something wonderful, something like romance languages, that's it. Ro- uh, poetry of the romance... La- no, no. How about uh, Baroque literature? Yes, Baroque literature, and and I'm known for my for my wonderful little side sallies, as I t- and and they're collected in little thin volumes of memory. I'm sitting there, and and I keep seeing this woman. I don't know who she is. She's a kind of an ant type. I I, I, I she's either either a wife I can't I, or, or or else she's a housekeeper. I can't tell, and she's always tiptoeing in with a thin white plate. Of, of transparent vanilla cookies and sherry. And she comes in, and, and, and I'm dozing off there in, the, in, the, in that orange sun, and she says, uh, some of the boys are here. The boys are some of the old classmen that I have taught. The boys. And sure enough, within ten minutes, I, I'm, I'm kind of roused out of my dozing slumbers. I dream of past generations of classes, and and I can't, I can't really, you know. I'm sitting there, and they're all gathered around, and we're talking, and we're having this one, and and this wonderful, wonderful light of pure affection, and I mean pure affection, is coming out of their eyes, and I'm sitting there, and I say, "How about some sherry, boys?" And my sherry is famous, and I never for thirty class maybe 40 classes or more. I have never told anyone where I get this wonderful sherry. It is rumored that a, that, a, that a duke or a lord somewhere in Spain who once studied incognito at the college sends it over to me every year in a little cask. Of course, I never say it's a drug, you know, the drugstore never comes into it. And I'm sitting there and I say, how about some of my sherry? And they lighten and brighten up and, uh, oh, uh, uh, Matilda, uh, some cookies for the boys. And she says, I've already anticipated that. And you can just smell that wonderful warm smell of the kitchen. She's been baking cookies for them to come. And she, she passes among them these hot cookies. And the Chris says, yeah, now it's hot, boys. You know that I... That, that they, uh, and, the, and the boys all say... And then I begin to tell stories. And the, the light is growing dim. And, and somehow now I see a fireplace beginning to glow. And I can feel the warmth of the sherry. And, and Matilda brings a wrap in. I've never worn a wrap in my life. I don't know what a, really what a wrap is, but she has this wrap that she brings in, and it's soft and woolly. And she says, put this around your shoulders. And, and 
Yeah, she puts it around my shoulders, and, and I say, oh, come on now. I mean, I'm feeling fine. And I push the wrap away, and I load up my pipe, and I begin to tell stories. Isn't that a fantastic picture? I've done it three times, Phil. I'm now going to do it again. Speaking of fantastic pictures, this is W-O-R-A-M at FM New York. Oh, the mundane world. There is not a single inch, not a single square inch of stained glass to be found in this whole miserable station. Not one. That is, that, that, why do I see myself declining that way when it's obviously, you know? Then again, on the other hand, I can see myself, but, but, but what, 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 you see? I learned about it from the bowling balls. I learned that you drop that one bowling ball at the end, that one. That one bowling ball at the end, that other one way down, 25 bowling balls from the end goes, <coughs> just pops out like that. So there's no escaping. It's not going to be so simple, you know. Not so simple, baby. Now look, I suppose some of you wonder. There, 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 there. No, no, we don't need this. I suppose some of you wonder why I have called you here. I had this said to me the other day. I get into this elevator. Now, now, all I'm talking about here, if you listen carefully, is Mr. Chip's bowling balls, odorless fertilizer, and reel that will bring out the true photographic honesty of your own soul. I'm standing in this elevator, one of these stainless steel elevators that rise and fall here, rise and fall in these buildings up and down. The Seagram Building, stainless steel elevators with the home of Muzak music playing behind you. A kind of limbo. And this elevator operator is standing there and he pushes the button and he turns around. He looks at an assembled group of solid-looking men, all wash and wear. Wash and wear souls, wash and wear lives, wash and wear sins. All of them standing there carrying their wash and wear briefcases. Looking to the front with that elevator look. The guy turns around and he says, Suppose you wonder why I've called all of you here for this meeting. And it didn't go over. Not a single man laughed. Not a single wash and wear soul even snickered. And he turned back to his buttons and didn't say anything. I felt terrible. I didn't know whether I should just give him a courtesy laugh. In the end, I chickened out. I didn't do anything. I stood there and glowered like the rest. I arrived at the 23rd floor, and I got out so fast, I didn't even look at his face. I didn't look at anything. We just stopped, and I scurried out. The door slammed behind me, and I thought, I'm out again. Well, someday, someday, of course... As inconsequential as it seems, all of these bowling balls, all of them bumping together, I'm going to throw that last one out again. It's like the guy, it's like the guy that I met one time, who was a dog race fan. I tell you about the guy I met who was a nut on dog races. He used to call them the Dugs. Really? Who to the Cedar Dugs? You learn a lot when you go down to see the Dugs, you know. I'll tell you about the time I went to see the Dugs. And the Dugs were, were racing with monkeys on their backs. I'd ever tell you about the monkey Doug race? Well, 
I'm going to tell you again because it means something this time. They had the big special race in which the dugs were loaded with monkeys. They put a monkey on the back of each dog. And then they started the electrical rabbit, and immediately the monkeys are underneath the dogs hanging out for dear life. The dogs are running for dear life, and the, and the, the rabbit itself is even scared. You can, well, you can applaud. Well, you can applaud. It was a fantastic sight, because the instant I saw this, this conglomeration of movement go roaring off down the track away from me, I knew that I was seeing the truth about my life. Am I a dog or am I a monkey? Or am I an electrical rabbit? Which, I have no idea. All I know is that the dogs wanted to catch the rabbit, the rabbit wanted to stay away from the dogs, and the monkeys wanted to hang on. Which are you in the vast dug race of mankind? A dog, a monkey, or a rabbit? Which are you? I suspect the rabbit itself is that, that confounded it, that, that, that sinister mirage that we're all chasing. How is it going, Mac? It what? What is it? Where, huh? Is that that ridiculous electronic rabbit, huh? It? Yeah, that's it. So we can eliminate the electronic rabbit, right? None of us are rabbits in this game of life, right? Huh. Okay. Now, let's take the pure physical side of it. Who is chasing that rabbit faster, the dog or the monkey hanging on his back? Which, on the other hand, has the most control over the situation, the dog or the monkey? I don't know. But then on the other hand, who is it? Now, wait a minute here. Look, you're not going to tell me that it's less important than that, are you? You're not going to try to duck out on it again, are you? Well, okay. I'm sitting there watching the dog race, and this guy sitting next to me is really digging this. I mean, he's one of the few guys I know who really dig the dugs. Dug the dig the dugs. Dug the dags, dukes, dogs. And I'm sitting there next to him, trying to understand what he was understanding. And then he began to understand that I wasn't digging what he was digging. The dugs. He called them the dugs. I mean, dugs. And then I said to him, this frightens me. I had to say it. And he turned to me, and I could see in his eyes that I had struck a chord that somehow he was frightened too. And we just both sat there and watched. Incidentally, I won $16 on that race. I bet on the short, fat monkey wearing a red jacket. I bet on the monkey, not the dogs. He was the scaredest-looking monkey I ever saw, and I only bet on him because he was a long shot. He had that sad look in the eye of an eternal long shot. Have you ever had the feeling that you are in a horse race and that you're a selling plater and that there are other guys running in this race that are favorites, shoe-in favorites, and you've just been put in to round out the field and it's a handicap race and you're liable to be sold at auction immediately after the running? Or maybe somebody's... Oh, no, no, this is not a fixed race I'm running. No, no, this is a fair race I'm running. I mean, I'm, I got just as much chance as the best. And so I see myself with that, with that beautiful orange, that light, that light coming in. That's what we need, wild, screaming applause. And, and, and just, no, there, there we go, a little, a little touch. You know... 
You're aware, of course, that there is an artistic principle that has been pursued by, by artists for centuries. And, and uh, it's a principle of what they call divine imperfection. Do you know what is it, divine imperfection? Well, you can construct mathematical beauty. I mean, the Greeks had a, had a business with the golden mean and the, the formula for beauty and all this stuff. But they always, in the middle of every beautiful epic that they created, they would stick one thing of outstanding ugliness because then it tied all of it together, you know. All of it. All of it. No one knows really why this is. Yin and yang could be. No one knows. But this is a true fact. One thing. That was the principle, you know, of the beauty mark. Are you aware of that? The imperfection. That that mark of, of seeming imperfection on the cold, glazed face of beauty. And then it made it beautiful instead of just perfect. All right. Are you ready for that, 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 that mark? Right? Right. right. Drive with confidence on General Tires. You don't take the tents with General Tires. You can drive anywhere. Only two dollars more than the lowest priced ordinary tires gives you all these extra values of famous general safety milers. Rugged seven-rib tread, shock absorber construction, extra mileage, recapability. See your general tire dealer today for the easiest terms in town. There, now don't you feel better? A moment of realism in a life that... that uh, yeah, there are many moments of realism. I, 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 You know, it comes out occasionally in the Times. Funny thing. I hope somebody, somewhere, someplace... Excuse me for a minute, I digress here. Do you remember the Collier brothers? Do you remember them? With their, with their terrible mess of a place? <laughs> you know, I, I keep thinking of a cartoon of the Collier brothers, and somebody's called, you know, somebody's come to visit them, and one of them says to the guy, the house is a mess. But, uh, <laughs> excuse me, I just can't help it. But the, the Collier brothers, one of the reasons the Collier brothers attract and interest and intrigue people so much is that, have you ever felt the very, very sneaking and, and very, uh, well, it's, it's a thing you try to push out of your mind, the, the sneaking feeling that you you have within you the the, the the little just the little strain of a collier brother in you everybody wants to hide do you know what hibernation is hibernation everybody wants to hide somehow somewhere some way and and lock the doors and and stock up a 
just stock up a place with canned goods and, and completely shut it all out. I one time met a guy. It's the strangest man I ever met in my life. And it had caused all sorts of repercussions in his life. And he was, he was, he was well up in years when I met him. You might have read the story. Well, I met this guy, an intriguing character, that at about the time of World War One, he was just a young guy, a very sort of weak person, obviously. And his mother was a fantastic battle axe, one of these really, one of these really tough, strong, hard people. And the father was dead. And so the war came along, World War One, and she decided he wasn't going to the army. And she's decided the way he wasn't going to the army was that she was going to lock him in the closet. And that would prevent him from going to the army. Well, it did. She locked him in the closet and he veritably disappeared from the face of the earth. For 25 years, this guy stayed in that closet. Believe it or not. And she used to feed him through a little slot that she had built she had one of these trap doors that go up, and you know, it was one of these unfinished closets. They didn't even finish the closet. And she'd feed him up through the trap door. She would put a little, a little plate of something, and he would peer down once in a while. Summer, winter, year after year, age after age, eon after eon passed, and this guy crouched in the closet until it got to the point where his only life was a closet life. And then came the most dramatic moment of all, when the old lady died, and there was nobody to feed him. And he was afraid to go out of the closet, because after 25 years in the closet, it was the only possibility that he had was closet world and closet life. He couldn't possibly go out. And he stayed in there, and he began to starve. He began to grow thin and white, Terrible, terrible thing. Until one day, somebody came, and they were going to clean out the house. The estate had been settled, and, and, and was it assumed that this son had died 25 years before. And they were cleaning out the house, and he heard them down there. And he was terrified, because in 25 years, his mother had allowed no one ever to enter the house. And he didn't even know that his mother had died. All he knew was that she didn't come anymore. And then finally, somebody raised that, raised that trap door. And they threw it back, and they looked down to the guy below and said, Hey, there's nothing but junk up here. Boy, is this place loaded with junk. And he was cowering behind a pile of old rags, papers, countless bottles and things that had formed his nest. He made a nest up there. A big bird's nest, literally, actually a bird's nest that he lived in. Papers, cans, millions and millions of things, all piled up. And the man crawled up through the trap door, flashed his flashlight around. This man had not had a light in his nest for 25 years. He crawled over the parapet to see where it ended, and he saw cowering down there this thing. He says, there's some kind of an animal here. It scared the daylights out of him. And he darted back and they closed the thing up. 
They thought there was an animal, some kind of a big possum or something there, which he almost was. His hair hung down to his waist. And three or four men came back, and they came back with fire extinguishers. Somehow they felt they could squirt whatever it was. And they turned on those flashlights again, and by now he had darted all the way back to the corner. He didn't know what they were. They seemed to be animals to him. All he had seen for 25 years was the hand of this person giving him this tray of food. And the two of them, the group of men and this thing, stood there for... And suddenly one of them said, It's a man! My God, it's a man! And he couldn't talk. His mother had not talked to him in 25 years. He had lost the power of speech. And they just stood there in the dark with their flashlights. Just stood there. And all he could do was make these funny sounds. And they didn't know what to do. He was a total and complete thorough monster that had no connection with any known life that anyone had ever lived. He just stood in the corner. And that actually is the end of the story. That really is the end of the story. There's not much you can say, actually, about it after that. Not much you can say. Oh, it's a tangled web we weave. A tangle web. And there are many of us hiding in corners, looking with cold, dark eyes at strange, menacing creatures creeping up on us. No comprehension, no contact, no world, surrounded by the artifacts of our past existence. Empty cans with Campbell's Soup Kids inscribed on them. Old headlines, millions of them, in our minds. Ancient, torn photographs. Archaic. And yet somehow meaningful, but only to us. And he crouched in his corner, just as many of us, maybe all of us, crouch in the corner. All of mankind watching some creeping thing with a flashlight coming and looking for us. Coming out through that trapdoor. hear that flute? I'm going to tell you something about that flute. I never talk about the music I use. I'll tell you something about that flute. You're hearing the sound. Set it back, Ralph. I'll tell you when. That flute has a very interesting symbolic meaning for all of us. Did I ever tell you the story of the anthropologist that I knew who went into the headwaters of the Orinoco and he found this tribe 
And this tribe had had a form of music, a kind of music that could kill, actually kill. And that upon one hearing, even if you heard it from a 40-mile distance, you were doomed, actually doomed. And it worked. He saw this working. But it didn't kill him. It killed members of the tribe. And the musician who played it died after he played it. They had a strange system of notation. And the man who played this flute, it was a flute that it was the flute of death. It is literally and very liberally translated. It didn't really say that. It said something like, the flute of eternity and fear and death. And this flute was kept, was kept in the chief's hut. And whenever the time came for the ceremony of redemption, the ceremony of contact with the gods, this flute was taken out. And the young man who had been trained to play this flute, not this actual flute, but other flutes like it, who had been trained to play this flute and this particular piece of music would be summoned before the assembled members of the tribe and he would be given the flute. And also, at the same time, the highest honors of the tribe. And then the man who was to be really honored for that year crouched down next to him. And the two of them were left alone in the camp. And all the rest of the tribe, for day after day, Seven days they would march through the jungle to get away so that they couldn't hear the sound of this music. And upon the dawn of the seventh day, after they had marched into the jungle, the man with the flute would begin at dawn to play the music of death, redemption, and fear. And then on the noontime of that day, the tribe would begin to march back Silently, they never, this was part of the ceremony, they never entered one moment of speech or conversation, not a sound. Both directions. And when they arrived back in the clearing, the two men would be lying with their arms folded, dead, with the flute between them. Now, you see, this is a very interesting symbolic story for all of us. Because each one of us suspects somewhere, someplace, somewhere, somewhere along the line, there is something, some bugle that's going to blow. I heard this story of a man who said, he says, you know, I arrived at this place one day, and I suspected something was there. And I left. I had a terrible fear inside of me. I said, what, 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 what was it? 
I always have a terrible fear in me. He said, I don't know. It wasn't Santa Claus. What do you think it was? Oh, maybe death. Oh, come on. Come on, Charlie. What do you... Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. What are you giving me? Yeah. Oh, come on. And I sat there looking into the bottom of my Pepsi-Cola bottle, my sociable Pepsi, and he looked into the bottom of his sociable Pepsi-Cola bottle, and we said no more. Now, I'm going to tell you something about this flute. This actual flute. This is the flute, and this is the song. This is, a, is, a, is an anthropological record. This particular flute and this particular piece of, of music is being played by an ancient, very ancient woman who is one of the last members of a Borneo tribe who remembers the days of the killing flute music. That since the civilization has come to many areas of Borneo, the tribal beliefs have slowly sloughed off one by one until only a very few very old people remember them. And this is a recording of a Borneo woman who was about 90 years old, who is now dead, by the way. This was recorded six years ago, playing a flute about 200 years old, was the estimate made, a flute that is a flute of death, and playing music of redemption and death of the Borneo tribes. A very, very rare recording. And this is the actual thing. That's for all the gang out at Pinkies where they're having a pajama party tonight. All the kids from uh, Woodbridge High School. <laughs> Speaking of redemption and death, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M, New York. I'm sure I'll have to answer for this one day. <laughs>
that's a legitimate recording, and uh, it uh, wouldn't it be terrible if if if, if suddenly I, I, the, the tickers start roaring and it says seventeen thousand people die in New York of mysterious malady, radio man sought. <laughs> You know, you can't. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. Speaking of mysterious maladies, we have with us tonight the village voice, which is a mysterious malady of our time. And uh, the voice is celebrating a lot of things, and the most important thing that they're celebrating right now is that they're moving into a new, a new, a new, uh, actually a new office. Uh, it's a it's a funny thing. I'll, I'll tell you this about the voice. Uh, I I feel since uh, you know it's getting to be autumn now. I mean, doesn't doesn't it frighten you a little bit? Don't you feel just a little trepidation? It's always getting to be autumn, or getting to be spring, or getting to be winter. Or it's always just about Tuesday. It always just was Wednesday. How do you picture time? I mean, how do you picture your life? Is it is it a circular track or is it a what what is it? You know, or or have you have you ever seen a picture? I remember one time looking at a at a movie that was shot, and it was shot for a class in psychology. It was a series of psychological experiences. Have you ever looked at a psychology film? of psychological experiments. The very most famous one, of course, is the monkey and the stick in the box. But uh, I think these would make great films if they ever if they ever put them into the movie houses. But there was one of a squirrel in a revolving cage, a squirrel in a race. And this squirrel was in this cage, you see, and he was running. And the cage was going around, one of these revolving things, and the old squirrel was running... He was galloping like mad. And as he galloped uh, from time to time, they would blow a little whistle. They would take him, out of his, take him out of his cage, and they would give him something to eat. Well, then they'd stick him back in the cage. And then, of course, what he did after he got back in the cage was he sat on his duff. He wanted more food. He didn't want this running jazz. He wanted food, you know. Well... They they kept this up for a while until he finally got the idea that if he if he ran he would get food. Well then then they reversed the thing on him. They stuck him in the cage one day and he st- every time he would run you see he would it's fantastic they would see him running his feet would go like his little old tail hanging up over his he would run and he had this this wonderful happy account executive look on his face. He looked like every guy I've ever known who worked for Benton and Bowles. Running after that new economy, he's running like man. He's got this happy look, like he's discovered the key. Well, then they would go, Boop, and he would slow down, and they would take him out. And they'd hand him a little chunk of cheese or whatever it was, and he'd get this happy look on his face. They'd stick him back in the cage, and then he would, he'd start running again. Boop, they slow down. He'd look happy, and they'd give him another piece of cheese. Well, this kept up for a couple of weeks, you see. They were euchring him, and to use a phrase, and to coin a bad one, they were mousetrapping him. He kept doing this until finally one day, he's running along. They didn't blow the whistle. And he kept looking over his shoulder. And he'd run and run and run, and now he's, he's starting to get a charley horse, you know. 
And finally, the guy goes, boop, and the squirt, oh, wow, it's about time. Oh, boy, what a sweat. Whew. He sits down in his duff with that happy look on his face, you know, the kind of look that, well, at last. Nothing happened. They gave him nothing to eat. He looks out of the, out of the cage, and then he's got this funny look on his face. The, the kind of look that says, well, come on now. Well, they, well, let's cut out the kid in here. Let's cut out the jazz. And they don't do anything. So slowly it dawned on the squirrel. He turns around and he starts to run again. He figures that he hadn't run hard enough. He's running like a madman now. Boy, I'm sweat is pouring down, his eyeballs are budging out, and his Charlie horse is like a, is like is like a basketball hanging on him. He's and he keeps looking back frantically over his shoulder. Finally, after he he's almost at the point of it, they go boop. Now, come on, fellas, please. (sighs) (sighs) He's looking out. No cheese, N-O. He sits there for about ten minutes. He gets up and he slowly starts to run. This time, very slowly. He's all pooped out. Then they go, and then he sits down and says, Oh, I see. They wanted me to slow up. Why didn't they tell me? Then they go, He's not doing anything. He's just sitting. Still no food. He says, I'm not running the, the whistle. Boop. Then he starts to run fast again. And then they start blowing the whistle continually. Boop. He stops. Now, wait a minute. Boop, boop. <sighs> Finally, do you know what that squirrel did? No. He just lay down and he cried. They blew the whistle at him twice. He's crying. Once in a while, his little paw would try to run all by itself. He's lying there crying. And then he begins to beg. Please, I can't. And then he got up. I'll never forget this. He got up and he started to run. This time he ran with, with purpose. He ran. They blew the whistle. He's running like a fiend now. His last gas. He does not turn around. Now they brought out a whole plate of cheese. They want to stuff it. And he fell to the bottom of the cage, dead of a heart attack. Well. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. I mean, I think that would look nice right after, uh, right, uh, f- just right after a Jerry Lewis picture. <laughs> you know what I'd like to show that at? Wouldn't that be a fantastic film to show at a sales meeting? Right after you show this big industrial film <laughs> about how, what a wonderful place it is you work in. You know, it opens up with We Are Wonderful Music. 
Bam 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 ba ba bam 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 bam. And then the voice comes in, the romance of bum 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 Blackboard erasers bum 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 And all the blackboard eraser salesmen sit there and they just feel you know it's important to be dedicated to something real. Bum 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 And then as the last notes die away when the trumpets are, are rising, you know, and the picture of the founder is rising up into those heavenly clouds at the end where it says the end, the, the boss stands up and he says, Fellows, we have a, a little special added attraction. For those of you who are animal lovers today, you might find this to be kind of fun. And on comes our friend the S I R L, the squirrel. <laughs> Everybody looks got they all got that funny look on their faces. What's the matter? You want me to bring the squirrel back for a reprieve? There he is, he's alive. I'm not fooling any of you. He's dead. D E D, isn't he? And who did it? Was it the squirrels that did it or was it us? Speaking of squirrels, we have with us the village voice tonight. And for those of you uh, who have been threatening to to uh, fall in line. For those of you who have been threatening to subscribe to the Village Voice, all I can say is, come on, you know, this is getting pretty ridiculous. I mean, I mean after all. But, but uh, the thing that I would like to say about the Voice is, many, of course, but one of them is the thing that was said to me by a guy who runs another newspaper and a very important one here in town. And uh, we were sitting down. We were having lunch. He's a publisher. He publishes one of the big morning papers here in New York. And he says, you know, I hear you talk about the voice. He says, I always get it. Do you know that every newspaper in the country now gets the voice? Every newspaper in the country. All the, all the uh, I'm talking about the regular dailies and weeklies in, the, in America get the voice. It's a funny thing. But he said, you know, he says, I'll tell you one thing about the voice. He says, these guys really have guts. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he says, you know, I don't know whether I, whether I would ever, whether I would ever even dream of starting a newspaper these days. He says, this is, a, this is an impossible thing today. I said, well, you know, ha have you ever thought about your own career? Have you ever thought, would you have the guts to start it all over again? to start doing it again, knowing what you know now? You know, really, do you think you would do it? I, I, I one time, I was sitting with a guy who was a tired doctor, and he had studied maybe 12 years, and finally he began to practice, and one thing and another. You know, there's a funny thing. Some people get official, and others don't. Some make it, and some don't. And I'm not talking about money. Some guys secretly suddenly realize that they haven't made it. That they are not good at what they, what they, what they think they're good at. It's a terrible realization to make, you know. It's an awful thing for an outfielder standing up there at the, at the plate and he suddenly realizes he's a 230 hitter. And it's not that he's in a slump. He's just a 230 hitter. And to follow a guy who's a 270 hitter, who follows a guy who's a 310 hitter, who follows a guy who's a 350 hitter. 
And to just get up there and say, I am a 230 hitter. Now, let's see. I've gone 0 for 12. Now, I am due. <laughs> oh, boy. That's terrible. <laughs> well, this, this guy, uh, this doctor I knew, had gone 0 for 37. And for 30-some years, he had been a doctor. And he just didn't make it, never. He wasn't a good doctor. And he knew it. And everybody else did, which made it even worse. A very sad thing. And so we're sitting around, and uh, we started to talk about courage. And that's a terrible thing to talk about sometimes. And he didn't say much. He just sat there. We talked, about six of us sitting around chewing the fat, and we're leaving. He has not said a word. He says, uh, this is on me. And he bought, he bought dinner for about six guys, which was very embarrassing because he probably didn't have enough dinner money there for six more, his total life savings, but he bought. So we're, he insisted. So we're walking down the street, and one by one we peel off, going our ways, until finally I'm left with another guy I knew who also realized this about this guy. And we walk about two blocks, we did, you know, there's a terrible feeling. We, we knew what we were going to say and what we were going to talk about, but neither one of us wanted to. And uh, we walked along, and we're scratching and talking and fooling around, and suddenly it came out. He says to me, the guy, he says, you know, boy. I said, yeah, boy. He says, you know? I says, yeah, <laughs> I know. We walk another... 60 feet, and I think it simultaneously occurred to us that it takes at least 50 times more courage to be a failure than to be a success. You know that? It really does, and I don't mean the gallant type failure. I mean it takes real guts to be a failure. I mean real guts. It doesn't take any guts to be a 350 hitter. It takes a good eye. It really does, you know, and good reflexes. It takes, it takes real guts to have a bad eye and bad reflexes and still put the suit on. Believe me. And we just walked along. I don't know where this guy is, this doctor. No. It doesn't make any difference, you know. He will eternally be what he is. Even after he'll have an unsuccessful tombstone doesn't quite make it. <laughs> it's just that way. And so this, this publisher talking to me, he says, you know, these guys have real guts, genuine guts, and I'm not paralleling at all with that. But I don't know. You know, Ed Fancher said something to me a oh, month or so ago. We're sitting in the H&H, &H and we're knocking down a lamb sandwich with mint on the side. I said, Ed, it is now almost five years since you did it. He says, yep. His beard waggling. I said, Ed, would you do it again? Nope. I said, but, you know, people read the voice now. I mean, you you really are swinging. So I couldn't do it again. I said, well, Ed, now that brings up an interesting point. If you, if you knew what was in, you know, if you had known what was in store for you, would you have done it five years ago? He says, are you kidding? Absolutely not.
And, and I remember just four years ago in August walking down McDougal Street with Ed Fancher, with uh, Danny List. Uh, let's see who... No, Dan was not with us that night. It was Ed, it was uh, Jerry Talmer, and Dan Wolf. Uh, Ed, Ed Fancher is the publisher of The Voice. Jerry Talmer is is the editor. He also is, uh, he's one of the editors. He's also the drama critic for them. And Dan Wolf is the editor. And we're walking down the street, and we had had dinner someplace, a real late dinner. And this was back in the days when I was on all night, and I was getting ready to come in. I was working seven nights a week, and I was out of my head probably three nights out of the seven with work. Have you ever worked so hard you can't see straight? I mean, literally, can't see straight. Well, that's what I, I was working all the time. I was just like, all the time. I just, just, I, I couldn't, I, and, and you know what you do when you develop, when you work at, at, at something that requires intense concentration, like this, for example, uh, when you work hard and long, you begin to develop a complete looseness and freedom that you can never develop unless you really do work hard and long. You know what I mean? It's like if you fly a lot, hard, you get so that you're a great flyer, you know? You don't even, you don't even think about it. You just, it just comes naturally. Well, I have been working, and I'm getting ready to come into the, come into the station. And it's hot. Oh, boy, the, the city is sitting on us in the heat. Guys are hanging from the, hanging from the fire escapes, and we're walking along McDougal Street, and it's dark, and... The paper has not been able to turn out a... How many of you remember The Voice when they couldn't even... They, they, they couldn't even afford to turn out a summer edition? You don't remember that. Well, I was involved. They could not afford to turn out their paper during the summer. And Ed said, and I, I will remember this for as long as I live, because I think The Voice, 40 years from now, is going to be a historic little paper. I believe that they will be paying $5 a copy for for copies of really collector item voices that go back to those days when Norman Mailer was writing red-hot, steaming stuff in it, when, when all of us were writing these wild things and struggling away. And Ed said, and this was four years ago, This, by the way, this was before I even had three listeners. I couldn't rub two listeners together and <laughs> get them to even know my name. And I'm walking along, and Ed says, I don't think we're going to be able to open up again. He just dropped it like that, right in the middle of us. And Ed was the guy that was, you know, he was the publisher. And, uh, and not much was said. You can't argue, you know. We walked a couple of blocks. And uh, I said, well, i got to go now. Because this was like somebody has just said, well, it's dead now. Too bad, we're sinking. What do you do then? You know, you just, well, Okay. So I, I got in the car. I had a I had an, an ancient used car that weighed nine million pounds and mounted twin fifties on the hood. It was so old. I got in this thing and I, I lumbered off. You know, I was so poor in those days that my car was running on willpower. It refused to die. The car sensed what was going on, and you know that for over three months that car didn't use a drop of gasoline. Now, I call that real loyalty. And, and uh, you, <laughs> oh, you know, it's funny how you get involved. So, so I'm walking along, and I get in the car, and I go. And before I go, Ed says, 
Well, he says, why don't you call tomorrow? I said, okay. So the next morning I called. After working, I was bleary-eyed. And I finished, and I, I called Ed, and we got together, and it was breakfast. And Ed and Dan and these guys had been up all night doing something, setting the paper by their teeth or something. This is literally what happened. So I met Ed, and the next morning, and Ed said, well, he says, I've got $200 that I was going to save. He said, because when this thing goes under, I am dead, and I'm going to have to have something to eat on. He said, I'm going to spend the 200 I said, what are you going to buy with 200 What can you do? He says, well, I can pay the guys. And Ed Fancher paid these guys because nobody had had any money for four months. He went around and he gave all the guys $30 until he had no more money. That is exactly what happened four years ago this month. Are you interested in that? And this was long before Pfeiffer even heard of The Voice. I'll point that out. You know that Pfeiffer heard of the Village Voice over this show? Interestingly enough. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, if you're getting into the background now, the Village Voice, you might be. And they used to have a different heading. In those days, there was a kind of solid block against the Voice. They couldn't give the paper away. And I'd like to, uh, one of the most interesting things about the Village Voice was that Norman Mailer, one of America's probably top ten novelists, of the past 20 years, used to go out on Wednesday night in a truck and deliver the paper by hand to the, to, the, to the news guys who didn't want it by hand. And every newsstand he would come to, they would have a hand-to-hand -hand combat. I don't want that paper! Get out of here! rag out of here! And Mailer would wrestle with him and fist fight, yell. The cops would come. And finally he would load the voice back in the car and drive to the next one. He was successful about one out of 25 would carry the paper at all, and only then free. You get no money back. <laughs> this is a fact. Well, all of you know now that the Village Voice is one of the most successful papers of ideas in the country. And I'd like to, I'd like to say this, that I'm very proud of my connection with them. Uh, very, very proud. You know, funny thing now, what's happened, I go into The Voice once in a while, there's a whole bunch of people in there that I don't know, and they don't know me, and they think I'm just this guy that does his thing on the radio. And there's the thing about hip-type people. They think that anybody who doesn't work in the accepted mediums, is there's, there's something very square about them. But, uh, and, and my medium, unfortunately, my medium is the most out of all, actually. If you, if you call unaccepted out, Daddy, how far out can you get? And so uh, I, I walk in the voice once in a while, and these, these faces look, and, and I go back to Fancher once in a while and sit there, and I say, Ed, have you stopped smoking cigars yet? For four years he has fought a losing battle with cigars. <laughs> he says, well, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going to have my second one right now. What a liar. Uh, completely lie. And so we sit there and we each smoke a cigar. And uh, that's it. So that's the story of The Voice. And if you would like, and I hate to put a commercial after this, because it really isn't, you know, I'm just telling you the, the facts of it. And The Village Voice is a, is a paper that is published here in New York. And there's a, an odd kind of humanity that runs through it. 
It has all the schizoid problems that everybody has. And it does not present a monolithic front to the world the way most newspapers do. It's very vulnerable. Very. It's one of the few newspapers I've ever seen that is chronically embarrassed. <laughs> it really is. And if you would like to subscribe to the paper, the, uh, the petty cash editor is now on duty. And I'd like to make another point. Do you know that Ed Fancher, and I'm going to say another thing I probably shouldn't say, that over three years went by before Ed could even draw the minimal salary. And you know that when they passed the minimum wage law, Fancher was breaking the law every week with himself and still is not law-abiding? <laughs> I mean, it must be rotten to be a boss. Unless you're really making... You watch, when they finally make it big, time will buy him out. <laughs> and Fancher will be farmed out to some place up in Japip. <laughs> it's a great paper, and uh, I'm, I'm proud to have been involved in it. And if you would like to call, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the offer again. They pay, you know, they pay the the cost of a phone call. It costs $3 a year, and, and I'll guarantee you personally, if after six weeks you're not hooked on this paper, they will gladly cancel your 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 money and send you back the, the whole business, you know? In fact, <laughs> they have been known to do it after the guy has gotten 11 months out of the 12. And there are such freebies around. You know, there's one priest in town, which I will not mention. This priest said that he has had three separate one-year subscriptions to The Voice, and every time he gets mad. And then after he's, he's left it for two weeks, he's got to go back and get it again. He misses being mad, apparently. I mean, you've got to have something that you have to... <laughs> but if you would like to subscribe to the paper, they will pay the cost of a collect phone call. So you call them at Gramercy 3... Now, wait a minute. Now, this is their new number, so don't don't look up. I will not give you their new number yet. Use their old number. It's Watkins 44669 in New York. Watkins 44669 here in New York. Now, this is the thing I'm going to add. Uh, last two weeks ago, do you remember we asked for the furthest away call? You know where it was? It was Houghton, Michigan. Some listener... Do you know where Houghton is? Houghton is way up near the Straits of Mackinac. Way up there. Some poor beleaguered listener up there picking us up with 4,000 miles of copper wire and a 28-tube receiver and a pair of cans is trying to get... <laughs> trying, 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 he's reaching, grasping for it. And, and he pretends that he's living in the middle of the village in Houghton, Michigan. And so he is the guy that got the free subscription. And, and the voice will do this that the furthest away call, and I'm doing it at this time, it's now three minutes to one because we must be getting tremendous coverage at this hour. The furthest away call will get a free subscription to The Voice, and they level. No kidding. Uh, they got one from Maine. They got one from uh, Florida. But the furthest away was Houghton, Michigan. Last week, it's way up there. Near Ho I used to spend hours on Houghton Lake, ceaselessly, ceaselessly fishing for smallmouth and northern pike. But the number again is Watkins 44669 in New York. Now look, the thing to do, I mean, for God's sakes, don't panic. I mean, don't panic. Very shortly, it will be Wednesday.
Easy. I mean, that goes up easy. Very shortly, it will be Wednesday. And then it will be Friday. You see, it's like... Well, I, I can't tell you what he said. Because I can't tell you. I mean, this guy sat in that corner. And I asked him, what did you think? When those strange things came in. I couldn't tell either. Now... All you got to do is to grab the end bowling ball. No, the actual secret of it is that you can't let go of the end bowling ball because you are the end bowling ball. And each little... Look, we're all too young to go, you know? I mean, we're all too young to go. It's too soon to cut it off. I mean, we've got many more things to do. we got it all before us. I mean, I, we were just getting to the point. Now, come on. All together now. All together now. We'll get this thing to the top or it's going to kill us all. Here it comes back down again. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. You are tuned to WOR 710 and WOR FM New York.